Amen. Amen. I love the Word of God. I'm so uh, delighted and honored to share it with you. If you don't have a paper, please raise your hand, and they'll get you one. Anybody missing a paper? Sister up here is missing a paper. How in the world that happened? Brother Danny will get you one. He's coming to you right now. All right. We've got a big word here, eschatology. You'll probably forget that before the night is over. But that's an easy way to wrap it all up. That word means the hope of the end. Or maybe another way to say it is the science of last things. It's the idea that there must be more than this, said almost every human being. There's got to be more to life than this. Something, there's got to be more to life than this. And that's the concept. Eschatology is belief that there is something beyond this world, that there is an end, and it's not just at the grave. There's a hope of end things. There's a hope of the end. Amen. Now, a core principle, and the reason why I'm talking about this tonight is because pastors have been teaching about core principles, principles for the body of Christ, principles of the Word of God. And, and one of the core principles of the early church was this concept of heaven, this expectation that they're going to go there one day, that Jesus is going to come back, that there's going to be a day of reckoning, that there's going to be a day of accounting, that there'll be a day of finally making things right. That produced a change in their conversation, a desire to tell everybody, a separation from the world at large. They acted differently and behaved differently because of this concept. There is a real heaven. Now, science is a wonderful thing. God used science, created science. Science can prove things. Science is not in opposition to the Bible. Um, matter of fact, there's a verse that says, some have talked about a false concept of opposition of, of the, the words of God, falsely so-called, because real science is just a proof of things. But this is one area where science fails. There's no proof of heaven. I can't prove it for you. There's a lot of books and experiences about people who say they've been to heaven, or they died and they experienced heaven, or they saw heaven. But even then, we can't prove it. Can't, there's no way we can say, this is what's going to happen to you when you die. At what point, how you go, where you go. The only thing we can do is look in the eyes of Jesus. And Jesus said, if you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. He's saying, you believe in me, believe in heaven. I've got this worked out. Amen? Now, just having that concept of heaven should change the way you act. We're driving to church tonight, and uh, Jennifer reminded me something. Jen said, honey, you remember that we have um, we got a donut on the back left wheel? I said, oh, that's right. She went to get the oil changed, and evidently on the inside, of the, when they did the tire rotation, um, that tire had one of the belts was kind of coming out. It was really bad, so... Now we have a donut on the back left. Now that means, it's supposed to mean, let's say that correctly, that I should drive differently. Should not drive as fast. Should not go around corners as quickly. I should be more careful because I only have three good wheels and there's a donut back there until they put it on tomorrow, right? It should make an effect. Now that's a negative impact. 
Heaven should have an impact on us as well. If I can get all of us, and myself included, to really buy into this concept that there is an honest-to-goodness heaven, there is a last day, there is a day of leveling all the playing field and making all the wrongs right, there's a day of justice, it may change the way we live, act, think, talk, even try to minister to others. Amen? Okay. One way to find out if something is really important is to take it out. That's one way to find out, is it a guideline or is it a principle? So if you strip this away from Christianity, take heaven out, or at least greatly diminish it, then this life is only about being good and doing good to others. That's it. Without a great day of reckoning, things are unjust and will be forever unjust, and people do get away with a life of sin. Do you see what I'm saying? This is a principle because without it, Christianity is basically meaningless. Do you understand? There, I'm glad that you love the Lord. I'm glad that you want to come to church. I'm glad that you want to have on this side God's work in your life. But if you take heaven out, there is no heaven, and this is the end of it, as some religions purport, then what a sorrowful life we have, and what is the worth of it, and why are people giving their lives up for the gospel's sake? What? Why? Just be good and do good to others and try to do good things and enjoy life. And like Solomon said, under the sun, it's vanity. It's all vanity. It's all worthless. Why did he talk about that? Because if you stay under the sun, that means just on this side, under the sun, without a view of heaven, you can do everything great and it's worthless. You can heap together for yourself, like Solomon said, all the riches or maybe collectibles or learning or knowledge. And then he said, you have to let it, you give it to the person who comes after you. And who knows whether they even value the things that you collected. I've seen this so often. I've seen this so many times. There's an estate sale and the kids and the grandkids are all selling grandpa and grandma's stuff that they collected. And I don't know that they even care about it. There's a little price sticker for like a dollar, 25 cents. All the things that was so important to granddad, no one even knows about. They're just selling it because it doesn't matter to them. Solomon said, if that's what life is about, under the sun, it's vanity. So there has to be something on the other side of the sun. I'm talking metaphorically about heaven, that there is a real place to go to. All right. So if heaven is your home, it matters less what home you have to live in on earth. If heaven is your actual destiny, destiny, walking on streets of gold and being in a place of perfect peace for all eternity, then the best things the earth has on, on earth has to offer looks like cheap toys. The very best of this planet, the very top, you say, now that is the best vacation, that's the best thing you can own, that's the best car, that's the best experience, that's the best thing you can have in your hand. Compared to heaven, they're like cheap toys. If we're going to be one day in a place where nothing ever rusts, nothing ever corrodes, there's no thieves break through and steal. If the Almighty is your Father, and you'll sit with all the saints at the marriage supper of the Lamb, and be with Jesus forever, then in, in a sense, you're royalty in disguise. Amen. 
Now, I didn't write this one into your um, paper, and if you'd like to add it, it'd be, it'd be a good idea. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 21. This I recall to mine, and therefore I have hope. This is in the middle of Jeremiah's sorrow and sadness about the current state of the people of God, how far they've drifted, how evil they've become, how God has promised judgment because of their wickedness, and they refuse to listen. In the middle of that, he said, hold on, I'm remembering something. I'm thinking about something. I'm going to recall that there is a promise of hope. There's a promise of a better tomorrow. I'm recalling to mind that God said, I am going to have a people. And when he does, he begins to encourage himself. It's like, it's like he shifts gears from being so morose and so down and so distraught to begin to be excited and encouraged. Matter of fact, if you and I begin to talk about the goodness of God, if we just get people together and say, tell me something that God has done good for you. Tell me a good story of what God did in your life. Give me a miracle or a prayer answered or an encouraging word. It begins to encourage all of us. It makes an atmosphere of encouragement, right? In a sense, the concept of heaven is not just to encourage us, but it's a reality that if we get our minds set on it, it changes how we think about this life. It really does. The homeland matters. I have never come out of an airplane and kiss the tarmac, thankful to be home. I've seen people do that. I've seen people on an on a old documentary do that. So glad to be home. Um, some that were prisoners of war of, overseas come and just kneel on the ground and kiss the land. Glad to be back in the United States. It's a funny thing. You talk enough, to enough servicemen and servicewomen over your lifetime, you find a different level of thankfulness for the country they live in. They say you don't understand what it's like living in these far-flung places. You don't realize the liberties you have. Jen and I experienced this. We went uh, for one of our anniversaries to Fiji. It was awesome. It was fun, beautiful place to go. I loved it. And we found a, a, a driver. He was our guide. His name was Varun, V-A-R-U-N, Varun. And he talked like that too. My name is Varun. He's a sweet guy. He was a mixture of... Fijian and Indian and whatever that was. So at one point we were talking about he was uh, having a problem with the camera. And we said, well, Varun, you know, if you want us to, we've got Amazon. We can get that for you and send it here. He said, oh, no, no, you don't understand. He said, if an Amazon package arrives at our, our post office here and just anywhere in Fiji, um, you'll, you'll get the package, but the inside parts have been ripped out. The only way to get a computer here is to put it in like an old package or even like an old computer case where they don't know what it is because you won't get it. I said, come on, that's crazy. Are you, are you talking, telling I can't send you stuff? He said, no, we can't get anything in the mail. If anybody knows there's money or it's valuable or if it's new, at the post office, they take it. Now, I have never in my life said, thank you, God, for the post office or postal service. I have never said that in my life. When I got back home to the United States, I said, thank you, God, that I can mail something and believe it will get there. Isn't that crazy? All the time, though, in Fiji, I think about to myself, eventually, at some point in this anniversary trip, I will be going home because homeland does matter. It matters what your homeland is. Now, I've got some verses here that I'm not going to read tonight because I have too much good stuff to talk about. I love the passages, but I'll sum these up. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 reveals how the urgent hope of heaven greatly influenced the preaching 
and the reaching of the early church. Their very way of life was influenced by the idea that Jesus was coming back. Now, some may say, well, they thought he was coming back right then. And that is partially true. But overall, we find throughout the Word of God that's not true. Paul told him, and we'll talk about this later, he said, no, his coming back is going to be sudden, but it won't be soon. He said there's a man of apostasy that's got to come first. There's some things that have to happen first. But he said it'll happen sudden. And the same thing for our life. I don't know if it'll be soon, but I know it'll be sudden. Since I was a child, I've heard people at, at my dad's church, at rallies, at campgrounds, at conventions, it seems like in all their times have been talking about this soon coming to the Lord. In the 70s, yes, I was around back then. In the 80s, in the 90s, 2000, we were at Mom and Dad Huttiger's, I believe, we were at the front praying at the altar because that, that computer was going to go to zero, zero, and the whole world was going to shut down. It'd be done. Jesus had to be coming back. It was over. And then, you know, it just happens that way, and that's okay to be ready. We know he's coming suddenly. We don't know if he's coming soon. We've got to live like he's coming suddenly. We've got to plan and prepare and behave our life as though he's coming soon. I'm, not, I'm sorry. Yeah, coming at some point. He's coming. We don't know when. So these things, I want you to understand that their very way of life was influenced by the concept of heaven. That there was really a heaven, and it was happening. First Thessalonians chapter 4 gives a picture of the catching away. There'll be a time when the dead in Christ will be caught away first. Then we which are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. First Corinthians 15 tells us about our new bodies. This is an important passage to, to read. People are often confused about that. Remember, Jesus talked about going into hell or heaven. It'd be better to go into heaven with one hand than two working hands. That, that was a parable, a concept. It was not, he was not telling you that when you go into heaven, you'll be like you are on earth. If that's the case, then James the disciple would be carrying his head in heaven because Herod cut it off. That doesn't make sense. Or those that were burned in the fire would be going to heaven as ashes. There'll be a new body, not this body, a new body. Will it look like this body? Well, that's a lot of discussion. They recognize Jesus eventually. I don't know. Will a body be like his body? It seems like it will be. Will we look like ourselves? I think we will. The Bible does not ever say that we won't know them, that we won't know each other. It doesn't say that. It says you'll know them by their testimony. We have to be careful not to add into the Bible things that make it make more sense to us. The Bible says you'll be known by your testimony. It doesn't say we won't know you or know your family or know your friends or know your loved ones. So we've got to be careful to make sure that we stay within the confines of the Word of God. And if it is silent, we can't speak up for the Word. Amen? The Bible says that he'll come like a thief in the night. This is four times, I believe, that Paul mentions that in his writings. But verse 4 explains, that's not for us. Verse 4 says, you're the children of the daylight. You're not children of the night. So I have a question for you. What will the thief be coming to steal away? Why will there be a thief? The answer is, he'll be coming to steal away the church, the body of Christ from this earth. He'll take away the thing that's holding all this earth together. People don't realize it, don't understand it, but if the body of Christ is gone, this will be a very horrible place to live. When the salt is gone from the meat, 
there'll be a lot of rotten meat. Amen? So, now, check this out in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul tells them not to be troubled, for much still has to take place before the day of the Lord. Verse 2 says, don't let anyone shake you up that the day of the Lord is at hand. Comfort your hearts in verse 17, establishing every good work, good word and work. He wants them to keep on working, keep on giving good words. It's going to happen suddenly, but not soon. And then the next part, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, he tells them that they shouldn't stop working. So why would they stop working? Well, the answer, the best I can find, is that some people believe the Lord was coming back so soon that there's no need to work. Well, let's wait around for him to come. Now, that's not far off. My mom was told, and maybe it was tongue-in-cheek, maybe it was a funny thing. I've heard such a vest of Manga say it too. Um, that wouldn't it be a shame if the Lord came today and you had $1,000 in the bank account? That would be such a shame. So she would say that jokingly. Maybe. My dad didn't think she was jokingly because she would try to always make sure to empty that bank account before the Lord came. But um, that's another story. Or, or like I used to do when I was a teenager, I would, I would always eat my dessert first. People ask me, Scott, why you eat your dessert before the rest of the meal? Well, the Lord could come. I need to at least have my dessert, which doesn't make sense either. But um, the truth of the matter is, Paul told them, no, you shouldn't stop working because Jesus is coming back. You must work and eat your own bread. That's what he told them in verse 12. You must work and you need to eat your own bread. That's bread that you worked for, not someone else feeding you. Amen. And boy, today, if there's ever a day you can find work, it's everywhere. So what will it be like when the entire church is finally gathered in heaven? Understanding our final destiny can transform how we act today on this side of eternity. Now, we have a limited and cloudy understanding of what life will be like there. Not a whole lot there. We do know some things. When you arrive in heaven, there won't be sections in heaven. There's not going to be the rich people live over here and the poor over there. Or these people that we don't like and these people that we do like. You know those folks you say you don't want to be with them? What if they're in heaven? There's not going to be any groupings in heaven. Streets you don't want to go down and other streets you like to be in. It's amazing. You start thinking about yourself in heaven, things change. It's a transformation. You're with the Lord. You're in a new body. There's no more tears, which means at some point he wipes away your tears. So there may have been tears before that point. I don't know much about that. Well, we know is that there is a heaven that God's promised that Jesus said, if you believe in me, if you believe in me, realize that in my Father's house, there are many mansions. If it weren't so, I wouldn't tell you that. Jesus doesn't give fairy tales to help keep his followers just following along. Heaven is real. So the end, of, the end in view concept, or fast forwarding to the end of the story, that's a foundational principle, and it's found in the Bible long before books were written about considering the end of your life or visiting your own funeral. This mentality of heaven seems to have been more active in the early church and also at the beginning of the Pentecostal outpouring in songs and sermons and conversations and prayers and even sayings. People would say, sometimes they would say, well, we'll see you there at the restaurant. We'll see you there or in the air. Yeah. What, what does it matter? What does it matter if we talk about heaven? 
What does it matter if we believe in heaven? What does it matter if we think about heaven? What does it matter if we believe that heaven can happen quickly and we'd have to have a given accounting for our life? What would it matter? It matters because why else are we living for the Lord? Now, I'm not saying there's not benefits on this side. Jesus promised there would be. There are benefits. There are blessings to living for God. There are blessings in family. There are blessings in finances. There are blessings in peace. There's blessings in our spirits. But they pale in, in consideration and perspective when you think about heaven. Heaven was so real to those people, it changed their life. It changed their mind. Who am I and who are you? That's the point. Where is your homeland? That's the question. Who is your identifying marker? What kind of people are you from? I don't think of myself as an alien. Aliens is a really weird thing. People talk about them a lot nowadays. There's a whole kind of alien sightings, alien movies, alien talk, alien books, alien conversations. UFOs are hugely in the news, etc. But in a sense, I do believe in aliens. Not, not the green men that come from Mars, you know, those kind of guys that take your brain, whatever. Not those guys. If you're talking about people that are non-humans, that can visit earth and move around, yeah, I call, so I call them angels, but in a sense they're aliens. And if you and I don't belong here, if this is not our homeland, then in a sense we're aliens too. Yeah. What we identify with can be so powerful, it can change our conversations. I was a little boy, I don't know this conversation, mom told me the conversation, she said this is what happened. We walked from our house up to the laundromat because dad had the car, because dad worked downtown Mopac Railroads. He worked at the big, huge building. And we walked up the hill and around to the little laundromat. And we're there. Evidently, mom is talking to the lady about her Italian heritage. And she's telling her all these things, and they're having a conversation at the counter. And the little lady leaned over the counter to talk to four-year-old Scott, and she said, so are you a little Italian too? And according to mom, I said, no, ma'am, I am not. I am a Pentecostal. (laughs) Now, that's humorous to me, but it makes me wonder, what made me say that? What connection in me made me think that was important to say? What would it make a child say, that's who I belong to? That's what I'm a part of. That's, That's who I am. And what would make you and I say, I love this earth, I'm thankful for it, but... I have, I'm not belong here. I've got another place that I belong. That's where I'm going to live. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is a shift in mentality. It's a shift in our thoughts. Now, I want you to think about this. I can only do this from the Italian heritage that I have. And we talk about the Italian heritage, but in reality, don't tell Pastor this, he's only half Italian. Because Dad, he's a mixture of all kinds of things. He's German. He's Irish. He's got something else in him. Who knows what? He's got some Indian, supposedly. Maybe someone said that. I don't know if that's even true. He's got some Scottish in him. We don't know. It's like a mix of things. So because we love mom's cooking and because we, she's, fit, she's 100% Italian, then we, we are Italian, quote-unquote. So, but I do know a little bit about that assimilation. This is what happens with any groups that travel and immigrate to another country. The cultural assimilation happens. First, that group is a minority in this new country. They have little knowledge of the language, how to dress or behave in the new land. They tend to stay together. 
They eat the food of the homeland, and sometimes they work together. This happened in St. Louis on the hill. This happened in New York. There was an Italian, many of these places. Boston has a little Italy. New York had a little Italy. All these like set up little areas where they would just live together. And the host country does not completely receive them and sometimes rejects them. Now, this is how much this changed by the time I came around. In my mother's day, saying the word dago, a slur for an Italian, was fighting words enough to cause a fight that was bring up other nasty words that wouldn't even say about other kinds of people. They would fight back and forth because you know, they were Irish or they were African-American or they were German or whatever. They, all, they, they had their words for each other and they fought. But dago was a nasty word, supposedly. Now, that, of course, is 19, you know, 15, 1920, whatever it was. By the time it comes around in my life, Jen and I are dating. Her mom says to Jim, so, honey, how'd your day go? She says, oh, he's fine. Just a joke, okay? But day go, how'd your day go? All right, whatever. So it really doesn't mean anything anymore. It's like I can't even connect with it. It's so far away. But in those times, many times the host country would reject them or partially reject them or say, we don't like you. No, no Irish need apply, right? All kinds of things. So the next part is this. Here's where they start to assimilate or come, become a part of the homeland. Financial assimilation is the second part. Well, they need jobs, right? They become involved in the community. They begin trying other foods. They buy and sell with the currency of the new country. They become a little more apart. Next is language assimilation. Now, that was a strange thing for my, my grandpa and grandma because their parents almost only spoke Italian but did not want their children to speak Italian. My mother doesn't know Italian. You would think, hold on, wait a minute, she grew up in an Italian home. Yeah, but they were careful. They wanted to learn English. We want to be English. We want to speak English like American people do. So she, she can hear it and catch a little bit of it and get some ideas and, you know, say a few words, but really she doesn't know it. Craziest thing. This language assimilation happens with their children learning the language first, school, other friends, and often interpreting for their parents. Because that has to happen. You know, how much does it cost? Or where do I go? Or what, what, do I, what do I need to buy? It can take years or decades, but eventually that accent starts to disappear. It really does. Finally, the greatest amount of assimilation happens through intermarriage. Now, it took a while. Early on, it was pretty much not heard of. By the time my mom and dad came around, my mom did hear from several uncles, several cousins. What's the matter, Rosie? Can't find a good Italian boy to marry? What's wrong with you? Can't find a good Italian boy? Well, of course, that was kind of a joke. Maybe it wasn't. I don't know. But intermarriage begins to really assimilate it. And what happens at this stage, the minority group becomes connected to the new land through their children and now grandchildren. And eventually... It's hard to pick out the points of identification they were originally known for. These children no longer talk about the homeland or visiting the homeland. They only have a weak connection to the old ways and consider themselves part of the new country. That's cultural assimilation. Okay? Wow. I wonder how we match up with that. Now, I know this section about how about the Jews. I might need to, might need to skip that. I'll come back to that if I can but here's a question I want to ask of myself. Oh, God, help us right now. How assimilated are we into this country, to this land, to this language, and the ways of these people? 
Where do you belong? Do you have a homeland far away? Do you talk about it? Are you looking to go there? Or have you set up foundations here? Will you be like Lot's wife that struggles when the time comes? Say, Lord, I, 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 want, I love you, but I want to look back. I want to stay here. I miss all that. Look at the, I know Sodom and Gomorrah is evil, but look at the pretty little houses we had there and, and, the, and, the, and all the people that sold, sold all the wonderful food and the, and the fun we had there. And yeah, there's evil, but there's a lot of good there too. Something to her grabbed a hold of her heart and could not listen to the angel and save her own life. How assimilated are you in this land? And how assimilated am I? That's a question we've got to ask. I, I can only bring you this word of the Lord. I can't answer this for your life. If you were on trial for being a follower of the way, that's who they were called before they were called Christians, would there be any evidence to convict you? If you were on trial today, you were a follower of the way. One of those key characteristics of the early church was their strong belief in heaven. This is not their home country. They did speak a different language called speaking in tongues. They acted strangely. They felt strongly that Jesus could come back at any moment. Suddenly, not necessarily soon, they talked about it. They acted in a powerful conviction that it was their responsibility to tell everyone. Not professionals, not special people, not anointed people. They were the anointed people of God. Wow. Abraham looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. What choices got him to that place? Well, there's a verse before that. It tells us how he got there. By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. This idea of living like a stranger kept his eyes on a homeland that God had for him. My concern for myself those I love, the church that I'm talking to right now, is that the homeland is getting real distant. It's hard to think about that. And I, I don't want to say it this way because I don't know if that's true, but it does seem true that those countries that experience the greatest persecution talk the most about heaven. It seems to be that those who are under the greatest pressure, whatever kind that is, economic, outright persecution, whatever forces that are on their life, they sing the most about heaven. They think the most about heaven. And I, I, I know there's a song, I, I looked it up, there's several different versions of it, and Mark Lowry sings one of them, and other people do too. But it says, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. And which is a funny thing, because no one here is lining up to say, okay, I'm ready to go tonight. My bags are packed, I'm ready to go. Oh, Lord. And the question is this. I think about those early Italian people that came and were scared and afraid, and all they ate was pasta, and they stayed together, and they talked about Italy, and they talked about going back. We've got to go back to Italy. We've got to go back to Venice. No, I'm going to go back to Rome. I've got to go back there. I've got to visit my family. And over time, that, that's lost. That's so distant. That's so far away. It took years, but it happened. We didn't even talk about it anymore. Hmm. Psalm says this, I am become a stranger unto my brethren. I'm an alien to my mother's children. Is that what it looks like for a child of God to be 
their eyes on heaven? Do they become stranger to their own family? Do they become a stranger, an alien to their own friends, those that are close to them? It's like, you're a stranger. You're an alien. You don't even belong here. And you say, I don't belong here. And neither do you. And Ephesians says that at that time you were without Christ. So you were aliens at that point from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers in the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So those who are lost truly are alienated from God. Wow. So let me go back real quickly to that part about what about the Jews. I've got a couple minutes. And I know my brother wants you to go longer than this, but don't tell him because I, I, I tell, you know, I want to go until when the Lord stops. I'm sure he's got, he and the Lord talk a lot, probably more than I do, so I just have enough to say. So what about the Jews? I wonder about this part. I always think about this. What happened to the Jews? Why didn't they assimilate, right? They were kicked out of the country, Yeah. They were taken over by Assyrians and by Egyptians. And after a while, there were Russian Jews. And we know there's German Jews. There's American Jews. There's Jews all over the world. Why, of all those people, you don't go and look and find Assyrians still. We don't find Edomites. Where are the Moabites at today? We don't find these people. Why? Where are the Philistines? Where are they at? Especially like Pastor says, where are the Philistine women? I don't know where they're at. They're all out there somewhere. But the reason why is this. Why in the world did the Jews not assimilate? Well, they kept the Sabbath. That's the first thing. And the Sabbath kept them. They kept the Sabbath, and the Sabbath kept them. They honored God. They put their mind every week at that day they set aside on the things of God. They read and reread the Torah of the Old Testament. They read it and reread it, and in the original Hebrew language, and for many years, they did not or could not intermarry. Remember the Fiddle on the Roof movie? Anyone ever watched that? And there's some point, I just remember thinking about this, it clicked in my mind, where dad is upset that his daughter is marrying a Gentile, I think. And he, sa- he stops talking to her as though she doesn't exist. They don't talk to her anymore, which sounds horrible. But that's how, that's how determined they were to never intermarry. Think about this. Why would God allow his chosen people to be in Egypt for 430 years? Why that? Well, number one, I, I find out in the Bible that they had idols even back then, that they served idols back in those days. But also, there's something else. The Egyptians were so racist against the Hebrews, they would not even eat with them, much less intermarry with them. They were safe inside of a country that would not intermarry with them. Now, of course, their safety turned to slavery. But, but as far as the chosen one, Jesus coming from that tribe, those tribes, it was going to happen because they were not going to intermarry. They would not assimilate. They held on to the word of God. They held on to the traditions of the Sabbath. And they said, we're not going to be, we're not going to be part of this world around us. And eventually, of course, they become more and more and more distant from the Lord, but still held on to the basic tenets. Wow. Now, last thing I want to say, if there's no resurrection, if there's no resurrection, if there's no heavenly reward beyond this life. Now, when I say resurrection, remember, that applies to both Jesus being, being resurrected from the dead and the resurrection of our mortal bodies, right? That's the hope, that we will have a resurrection one way or the other, 
either from after we've died or if we're still on the planet. How will that happen? Nobody knows exactly. We know we'll be changed in an instant. The Bible doesn't say we'll be floated up in an instant. It does it not really clear about that. It says we'll be changed in an instant. Does that mean you'll be changed and then you'll just take a, you'll be like a helium balloon just real slow and people can watch you drift out of sight? I don't know. Jesus did it that way. I'm not saying we do. Just wondering. You never know. But if there's no hope of that resurrection happening, Paul says, look at me. If that's the case, then I'm a fool to be pitied. That's in 1 Corinthians 15, 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Now, this happened to me when I was in Bible quizzing. I, you saw that verse up on the first page, the one on um, 2 Peter, chapter 3. There's a passage in 2 Peter that I had memorized. I was 17 years old. And one of the things about Bible quizzing is that you just carry cards around with you all the time and you say verses. And sometimes you're in the car with mom and dad or someplace going somewhere, you just memorize, you know, you just say stuff. So for some reason, we're, we're going to go and visit with Uncle Gary, um, dad's brother-in-law, down there in St. Charles. They had kind of a smallish home. He worked for, um, I don't know what it was, McDonnell Douglas, right. So they made airplanes and they had all this kind of stuff. So <clears throat> I'm memorizing this card. The card is about all these things will melt with a fervent heat. That's the verse I'm memorizing. What kind of person should we be? Seeing all these things should be dissolved. That's the verse. I'm over and over in my head. And we were there in the small home, and Uncle Gary said, I've got to show you something. So Dad and I go down with him into the basement, and Uncle Gary has in that basement, I could best describe as a shrine to golf. Golf balls in little cases, special little tags for each one of them, line the walls. Shells made for them. Hickory golf clubs that were all here. Every golf, every golf uh, course across the world that he's visited. Places that mentioned him in Golf Digest magazine. Just is like a shrine to golf. The whole thing. And I can't help myself. I'm going around touching every golf ball and saying, you're going to be dissolved. You'll be dissolved. You're going to be dissolved. You're going to be dissolved. <laughs> and I don't know what he thought about me. I don't know if he heard me or thought I was just crazy. You know, you know his... his his nephew has lost his mind. I can only think in my mind, everything's going to melt with a fervent heat. And I can see the golf balls just melting. The Bible says the elements themselves will melt with a fervent heat. Think about that. You want to go home today, as much as you love your house, go around and touch everything and say, that's going to be dissolved. That'll melt with a fervent heat. I love that. Boy, that's my favorite chair. Melt with a fervent heat. Dishes, oh, that's, oh, we had that one since we got married. Melt with a fervent heat. That's that little grandfather alarm clock we have on the wall that we got. That's one of the few things that we still have since we got married. It goes off every 15 minutes. People that come to our house eventually either go deaf with it or just ignore it or something. I don't know. Ding, 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 ding. That's at 15. Then it's at 30. Then it's 45. Then back at, I don't hear it anymore. I haven't heard it for years. But that thing, that's going to dissolve. Yeah, melt with a fervent heat. Better believe it. All this, all this stuff you love, put your finger and say, melt, dissolve. The truth of the matter is, we're living in a temporary world. And I, I'm not saying don't be successful or try or serve people or do good, but God help me to get a hold of this. I've got to remember, this is not my homeland. I've got a place I'm supposed to be going to. And if I, if I act that way, if I think that way, 
I won't be setting my foundations here. What, what's the word say? Set your affections, things you really feel great about and excited about, and affections. Set your affections on things above, not on things beneath. Set your affections up there, and I, I feel like the Lord is calling us, calling us, calling us to remember there is a heaven. There is a real heaven. There is a hell, yes, but you do know that heaven is mentioned more than 10 times more than hell is mentioned in the Bible. Count them up. More than 10 times heaven over hell because that's what we've got to focus on. We're not children of the darkness. We shouldn't have fear. There's no need to worry. That day won't come like a thief for us. It will for the world. Right? Listen to this. It is true that knowing Jesus and loving Jesus can make this life better. But sometimes it'll make this life worse. Look, it's not fair is the cry of the masses. It's not fair how much people get paid. It's not fair that this person got killed. It's not person that these are people getting away with it. It's not fair that they're doing that. And it is true. And they're just like the Lord. The Lord said, I don't like when things are unjust. I despise unjust weights. God feels the same way. Guess what? There's a day of reckoning. There's a day when he's going to say, okay, now it's your turn. You had plenty of time to get it right, and you didn't. Jezebel, you had 17 years. 17 years? Lord, why did you give her that much time between the time they said you're going to die and your blood's going to be splattered and the dogs will eat you to when it actually happened? Why? Because God gives them time to repent. God gives all of us time to repent. God is saying, I'm, I'll give you a chance. I'll come knocking on your door. I'll send you some more cards. I'll send you some flowers. I'll come by with a little song or maybe a little verse or someone give you a little word. I'll call you back to me. But if you don't listen, he said, there'll become a time. I'll lay it all out. And those who are not under the blood, everything they've done wrong, they'll be accounting for. Everyone. Everyone. For the unbeliever, this life alone gives them chance at pleasure. They have a bucket list. The, the things they want to do before they die. And whatever happiness they could find now is all the unhappiness they could ever find. And they'll ever know how different it should be for us, for those who are believers. There should be a differentness about our heart and our mind to realize this world is not my home. I'm truly just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere behind the blue. That really should be our call. That should be our song of our heart, of our life. Stanley, would you right now? Come on, somebody. I need you to just take a minute. You've got plenty of time right now to pray. Close your eyes. Reach out to the Lord. Call on him. Lord, would you implant this in my life, this concept of heaven? Would I realize everything is going to melt? It's going to be dissolved. Help me understand what is real. I don't even know what real is anymore, Lord. I think that this earth is real. I forget that it's not real. This is not it, Lord. This world is temporary. You are eternal. Everything I see, Lord, every problem I see right now, every concern, everything that bothers me is temporary, Lord. Everything that troubles me is temporary. Oh, Lord Jesus, come on, everyone. I want you to take just a minute right now. Reach out to the Lord. Raise your hands. Call on him. Say, Jesus, I need you in my life. I want you, Lord. I want you. Implant this concept of heaven deep in my heart. Let me, let me talk about who I am differently. I am a child of God. I am not of this world. I am a stranger, an alien here. Yes, Lord Jesus, we need you right now, Lord.
of calling on your name, Lord. I believe you're a powerful God. You're a life-changing God. Your word brings light. It brings understanding to the simple. Do your work right now in us and through us, I pray, Lord. We desire you, Lord Jesus. I want your light in my life. Bring light, Lord, wherever, wherever there's darkness. Let light be sprung up. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord, for your hand. Thank you, Lord, for working through us tonight. Thank you for talking to us. Thank you for loving us enough, Lord, to interrupt our lives, interrupt our schedules, and give us a word, a message for us to hear. There will be an end, Lord. I want to be ready for it. I'm going to be ready for it. I'll look back on this, Lord, as a very, very short time, a very short life, when I'm with you forever in eternity. I thank you, Lord. I thank you, Lord, for it. I thank you for it. Jesus' name. Someone clap your hands to the Lord. Say, thank you, Lord. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. I worship you, Lord. My hands clapped. I thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I pray you have an incredible week. Go in the peace of the Lord. God bless you.